This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Good evening uh, to everybody and welcome to Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele. I'm delighted to be in your company tonight as we continue to share spotlight on governance issues affecting shareholders and stakeholders in both private and public sector. Before getting into before getting entangled into tonight's topical issues, let me thank Howard Feldman, Sasha Starr, and Mandy. And uh, as always, I'm not flying solo. I've got Vusi here, who's a technical producer. He will assist in making sure that the show delivers the goodies that it should. Um, tonight, I'm privileged to welcome um, a friend, a colleague, um, who's going to be my uh, institute guest. Her name is Joan Madison, who is the head of uh, corporate governance at TMF. Um, Joanne, good evening and welcome to Beyond Governing. Thank you, Nambrad. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure is mine, ma'am. Uh, before we actually get into the, the, the real issues, um, this is your show. I implore you to weigh in on our conversation um, as we really value your your suggestion. Our SM line, SMS line, of course, is 34519, and my email address is nimrod at chai.co.za. And, of course, you can try us on, on air at chaifm.com. Um, moving forward, Joanne, um, tonight's conversation really is all about the 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 boards um, of corporations. We know how you know the powers vested in boards and the extent to which most boards or boards as a whole are actually the custodians of corporate governance, i.e., the manner in which the companies are managed and held to account. Which means when something goes wrong, fundamentally. All eyes are on the board. So this puts many people in a very precarious position. We have seen recently with the likes of KPMG, Trillion, Eskom, Transnet, IEG, BSTNs, Lehman Brothers, as the list goes on and on and on and on around failures of corporate governance. And, and these leads to one question, where was the board and how come the mess happened under these boards? Well, I think that corporate scandals have been going on for many decades. I think one of the reasons there's such a proliferation of exposure of corporate governance scandals is that on the one hand, we have a proliferation of media, and media is in your face 24-7. So people know about it more, and because of social media and other channels of communication, they can react to corporate governance scandals. Also, I think there's been an evolution over time in terms of what is and what is not acceptable. If I think several decades ago, when Anglo-American owned the two key newspaper groups in South Africa, you had cross-directorships, and the board members would discuss the prices of newspapers for both groups of newspapers. In today's environment, that would be a contravention of the competition legislation, and there would be a lot of consequences. Um, the Competition Commission also publicizes the results of its deliberations regularly. So there's a greater awareness of what is acceptable and what isn't. So I think those are some of the key reasons. I couldn't agree with you more um, on those particular issues. But maybe let's take a step back, Joanne, um, and, and really unpack the foundation, the very foundation of of board's performance. 
boards are there to oversee the operations of an entity and their powers are born from a legislative framework. For an example, um, the Companies Act is very clear in terms of what the role and responsibilities of the board are. Um, when we're looking at the, 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 the public sector, uh, PFMA is very clear as well. Um, can you maybe just share with us what are the uh, key financial duties or responsibilities of boards so before we before we really get into um, why some of those financial responsibilities or duties are being are being assaulted. Well, the key one is that directors have to act in the best interests of the company. And what that means is they have to act in the best interest of the company on whose board they sit. So particularly in a group, that becomes problematic when a director sits on the holding company and the subsidiary and often acts in the interests of the holding company. In terms of the Companies Act, you can't do that. But it's very difficult when you see a director of a holding com- uh, company on a subsidiary board acting in the best interests of the holding company to hold that director to account. Very, very difficult to prove. Um, one, one, one of the issues, I mean, obviously, we, we're trying to get a sense of the financial responsibilities while obviously, honestly, and, and backing, you know, um, acting in the best interest of the company. So, you know, you were just sort of unpacking some of those issues. But let, let me perhaps maybe um, go through the notion of acting in the best interest of the company. Um, is this, in my mind, this is not ambiguous, it's very clear. Uh, but the interpretation uh, of acting in the best or in the best interest of the company often uh, people don't people don't seem to get it. What accounts for the failure for board members not to act in the best interest of the company, especially in a in in, in a conglomerate setup? I think a lot of it is human nature. I think it's laziness. I think it's greed. I think it's not taking the time and trouble to understand their duties and competencies. Um, It goes to the very beginning of the process when boards are selected that you have to do a matrix, understand what are the skills you need, what are the skills you've got, and you need a courageous leadership to choose a robust, vibrant board that will challenge the board in decisions and have dissenting voices on the board so that when you come to a decision, you really can substantiate what you are saying. So if you have a board that's made up of cronyism, it's very difficult to have a a board that is strong in leadership and in governance issues. You're raising a very critical point um, around chronism, which is an issue which literally, I mean, for me, that cuts across both private and public sector. Um, This raises a fundamental question around the understanding or appreciation of what it means for you to sit in the board. Because if you're going to be lured into a camp or, or, or a position that is contrary to you acting in the best interest of the company. Does it mean you understand exactly what your role is or ought to be? I think you might very well understand what your role is, but it goes back to human nature. You might be very greedy and there might be opportunities to profit personally. For example, in the 
in a listed company, if there's something you do that will have a short-term impact on the share price, which might affect your bonus or um, shares that you plan to buy or sell, that might outweigh what you what you know is right and you might think that you can get away with it because things like insider trading are quite hard to prove mm, yes i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more but let's let's take a step around to step back around dissenting voice in board because this is where most people um i found i found wanting uh, bearing in mind the complex nature of being a board where some decisions are very controversial um, what I'm trying to flag here is is that some some board members ordinarily uh, would voice their their the, the uncomfortable nature around a particular position, um, but because the 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 there, is, there are parallel processes in my mind or based on my experience, there, there's a formal board, there's also informal board. Um, the dissenting voice gets subdued purely because. Um, the informal board take precedent over the formal board. By informal board, I'm saying I'm th- I'm, I'm talking about uh, you and I having a cozy relationship, going playing golf together, doing other stuff outside the board, but you know bringing issues that go to bear on the board outside the board, so that when we come and sit and deliberate on, on on the board, we literally suppress the descending voice because we have we have clusters, we have um, alliances on a particular uh, controversial issue, for an example? Well, I think one of the big issues is the remuneration paid to directors. So if we just look at non-executive directors, it's very important that the remuneration they they receive is not critical to their wealth and their day-to-day lifestyle because if it is, there's a greater chance that the director will compromise his principles to make sure he remains on the board. So I think every director's got a you can't you can't find fight every battle that comes your way. So a director would need to decide is this a battle worth fighting for and how far is he prepared to go in the matter? Is he prepared to walk away or be forced off a board? I think it also talks to the fact that directors should not have too cozy a relationship. So they shouldn't socialize too much, but they need to have a collegial relationship because the more you understand your board members, it's easier to understand what are their values, what are their principles, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses. And also you want a certain culture on the board and a certain robust vibe so that you can get the best out of out of the members of the board. So I think you need to encourage robust debate with a view to understanding that this is not um, meant to criticize anybody, but it's seen as the best way to reach a decision that is in the best interests of the board. Also, listed companies promote this kind of independence in that you have to have a policy that talks to the balance of power and ensures that no one director or group of directors have more powers than another. So, for example, the chairman of the board can't be chairman of the audit committee, although 
he can be on the audit committee, but it's certainly not recommended. You'd have to provide a motivation to the JSC. The chairman of the board can also not be chairman of REMCO, but he should be a member and he has to be the chairman of NOMCO because the board is regarded as the prerogative of the chairman. So he makes the ultimate decision as to who is and who isn't on a board. Or should I say he has the most sway in the final decision. So I think if you've got a proper balance of power and also independence of mind, if you look at King 4, there's been an evolution in what independence means. So the current definition of independence is whether you're an executive or a non-executive, you must think independently. So you have to balance very carefully how much time you spend with other directors so you have a collegial relationship but it doesn't overstep the mark and become too cozy where you where you find it difficult to di- disagree with a director. And I think it's strengthened by the relationship with the company secretary. The JSE requires boards to put a statement in their integrated report substantiating that there is an arm's length relationship between the board and the company secretary, which gives the company secretary power that if he or she sees something wrong going on the board, the relationship doesn't compromise that person from bringing that issue to the appropriate structure in the board and committee relationship. Okay. We're going to take a break, but before we take a break, um, this is what I want us to come back at. Um, the, the notion of independence of board, even though in theory we are expected to be independent. The question for me uh, while, while we're taking a break is going to be, is it possible for a board member to, to put in a veil of, of ignorance in the context of this plethora of media w- w- which informs our you know, daily to day to day narrative. Um, let's take a break. We'll come back. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 23 after 6. I'm joined in studio by Joanne Matheson, who is the head of corporate governance at TMF Global. Before we enter the break, I asked a question around independence, the extent to which board members can become independent, even though it is expected. Uh, for for everyone else to become independent when you're applying your thoughts. But the question for me is, in the context of very vociferous media space, um, which 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 influences every decision that we make uh, and precedence that has been set before you, is it possible for you you as a board member to become independent? That's the question I I I want you to... I think you have to invest a lot of time and energy in making sure you're properly informed. For example, if we look at the rise of President Trump, his supporters get most of their news from Fox News. So they're getting one viewpoint. And I think what's happened in America is that different media present only one viewpoint. And if you look at the media in South Africa too, many publications have a specific line, whereas 
If you want to get a balanced view, you've got to understand what is the personality and the credibility of the publication you're reading. And if it is one that only gives a specific view, like a liberal view, you've got to decide where can you get a credible viewpoint that presents the other side of the story. And so even if you don't like the other side of the story, you need to have an appreciation of what the other side of the story is so that you can have an argument that will take all factors into account and that way you can remain independent. But it does require an investment in time and also from a media side with the proliferation of of social media and anybody can start a blog it means that you need to critically assess what you're reading and decide does this sound credible are the arguments valid is there a logical flow to this so you have to develop your own analytical abilities and that talks a lot to education if we look at education in the past in South Africa and in fact all over the world a lot of it was rote learning it didn't teach people to be independent if i think when i was at varsity you could often tell by the nature of the questions which varsity a person had come from <laughs> in their undergraduate degree whether it was a university where they just were told to regurgitate or where they had a, uh, a different kind of education where they were encouraged to ask a lot of questions and no question was a stupid question. Well, I mean, I, I, I can definitely uh, share your sentiment on that point. But in a nutshell, when independence is, is fostered by due diligence, um, research, and and the need to prevent or to present um valued i mean um, evidence driven uh, information um perhaps maybe in a nutshell this is how we can sum up um independence because if you're presenting um a position that that is informed by due diligence process that you have undertaken which means you've looked at the pros and cons you've looked at the risk and and out of these risks you're able to elevate um a a value proposition one but also appreciate the importance of researching, like you've just said, you know, going, going through um, uh, um, a number of issues to say what has been the precedent, how did we end up where we are. So basically, these are some of the things that enhances independence of a board member. I suppose that could come handy when um, you are a, a, a solo or a descending voice in board, because the, the critical question is for me, um, we would not have had the kind of shenanigans you've seen at KPMG, Trillion, ESCOM, AIAG, uh, Lehman Brothers, and so on and so forth, if the, the descending voice was able to make a business case. That's definitely a strong side of it, but the other side of it is also the directors are entitled to rely on the information they get from executive management. And there is a possibility, um, obviously not being on these boards, I, I can't say for certain, but there is a possibility that you have a very dynamic CEO and CFO who present a compelling case 
to the non-executives and they don't ask the right questions or it's such a compelling, charismatic approach to the board that they don't see any red flags in the argument. So you really have to be very astute sometimes to, f- to find the issues. I, th- I, think, I think that point of being astute uh, elevate the importance of, of you as a board member reading your material well in advance and coming to the board meetings prepared. Um, and I've seen in so many instances where uh, the board packs arrive late or uh, board members don't necessarily apply themselves, particularly on the side of the risk. Um, and, and it is just a matter of compliance. Would you agree with me there? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the agenda of a board or a committee meeting, if 80% of it relates to compliance, there's something radically wrong. All those compliance issues should actually be delegated to the committees so that when it comes to the board, the board has the comfort that the audit committee, in particular a technology governance committee, a corporate governance committee, um, all the other committees that you need have done their due diligence and have presented a coherent well-thought-out summary to the board because basically at board level they should be spending 80% of their time on strategic issues, not on compliance issues. There's something radically wrong if it's the other way around. Let alone operational issues. But unfortunately it takes an astute board member to understand or even to, 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 you know, to, be, to be able to identify uh, operational issues uh, you know, from the strategic issues. But equally, I've had instances where executives deliberately mislead a board by presenting either, you know, substantial information just to lose the board. Um, And it takes time for boards to really go through material and pull out salient points. But because ultimately, as a board member, you are held to account on a decision that you have made. And the quality of your decision is informed by the quality of submissions. If the submissions via the board peg uh, uh, is substandard or, um, you know, it has been somehow manufactured, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, in, in codes uh, to mislead you um, as a board member. Because these are some of the issues that, in my mind or in my experience, are 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 leading boards astray because there's there's often information asymmetry. Um, board members have a particular set of information. Executives have a different set of information on a similar issue. Your your experience or your take on that? I think you're absolutely right. I think depending on the complexity of the company, the board needs to explain very clearly what level of detailed information they want. For example, a very big group that's in an industry that's very compliance-orientated, I've seen board packs that are regularly 600 pages long. It's unlikely that every board member is going to read that. So in a case where you're in a very compliance-driven industry, I would recommend that firstly one really grasps what integrated thinking, integrated decision-making and integrated reporting is. And if you have that as your basic framework, in the front of each key item should be an executive summary. 
the executives are asking the board to make the following decisions so that the board is focused what is it that they have to do instead of wading through all this volume and getting lost in the detail i think that's critical also the structure of the agenda i think the key decision issues and strategic issues should be at the beginning of the board agenda where everybody's fresh and the compliance issues approving the minutes even should be at the end because hopefully those are routine things that can be ticked off the list quickly but what is the role therefore if you want to be that kind of if you want to be that meticulous in ensuring that um, the, the the information is not cluttered um, what is the role of the board chairperson and most importantly, the role of the company secretary. Because if the two individuals are not working together, uh, management is likely to confuse or mis- mislead the, the board. Well, I think it's important, first of all, is that the board articulates what level of detail they want and what kind of information they want. And the company secretary needs to work very closely, not only with the chairman in formulating the agenda and the agenda pack, but with the CEO and the CFO as well. Because the CEO and CFO is the operational side. So the company secretary would deal with the detail there and guide the executives and the chairman of what level of detail makes sense for that type of board and that type of industry. It's also incumbent on the chairman to manage the time of the board properly. So on the one hand, the chairman, whose key role is actually to manage the board, and the CEO's job is to manage the day-to-day affairs of the company, should give each board member a chance to deliberate and express their views on a particular matter, and then should summarize what has been decided so everybody is clear what are the key arguments, what has been decided, what are the actions that need to be taken. So the chairman must when he looks at the agenda, must have a good idea in his mind of how much time should be allocated to each issue. And if somebody's rambling on, he must have the strength of character to say, okay, we've got your point. Has somebody got another point not to just reiterate what we have already heard before? And that way the board in time will understand the culture of that board and they should hopefully get into the swing of the way things work. One of the issues that um, we we have come to realize um, behind the failures of most boards relates to trust deficit, Um, particularly in, in, in a very complex environment. What is the role of the chairperson in ensuring there is that unity despite there need to be, you know, to have a diverse view or perspective of issues. Because here's where I'm going with this thing, with this issue. Where there is trust deficit, it is very difficult for board to, to resolve critical issues, purely because there are vested interests, uh, which calls upon leadership on the side of the chairperson uh, to, to manage those kinds of complexities. Um, but but from where you're sitting and based on your experience, how do you how do you overcome trust deficit? Sure, that's a very difficult one. I think in the current environment that we live in, the first responsibility is to meet 
perhaps individually with the people who are causing the problem and to understand their side of the story. Then, after you've understood that, you would give you would give your side of the story of of why things have gone wrong, how you think they should be improved, and then you need to put an action plan in place. So, for example, if an individual has consistently not met deadlines and this has caused huge problems, then you need to understand, is there a lack of resources? How do we facilitate you, give you the backup you need in order to meet the deadlines? If it's an, an issue of unethical occurrences, then you've got a bigger problem. Then there's a breakdown in the relationship and then I think you have no choice but to get rid of the person because to get that kind of trust back is very, very hard. I can imagine that, especially when when you're operating at that level. But one of the issues that you you, you mentioned, which I think is quite critical around the importance of uh, maintaining discipline um, by building that element of trust, because trust is an issue, um, speaks to the, whole, the entire organizational culture. Um, and in your experience, how how difficult or easy it is um, for boards to have a particular organizational culture that allow the voice of dissent in a, in a very constructive fashion to a point where um, issues, even if there's a, there are disagreements, when people are called to make press statement, you don't get to hear. Look, um, that was not my view. I was forced, you know. That's a boss, you know, uh, 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 decision. Um, ultimately, to a point where you exonerate yourself from the collective. Well, you can't really because the board is a collective. If you are a dissenting voice on the board, it has to be minuted and you have to have the strength of character to say that's the majority decision, I accept that but I disagree with it and I specifically want it minuted these are my reasons because if the matter does go to court and the business judgment rule comes into play and there's a liability issue, that director could be exonerated completely but you can't um, you can't go to the media without having explored it first to the fullest extent in the internal structures. I'm quite excited about this point for a simple reason, Joanne, because it, you can have a strength of character to challenge and say, let this be minuted. Very few people, by the way, will say, look, let this be minuted, that on this particular day, on this particular issue, I did, I was not um, comfortable voting on this. These were my reasons, okay? Um, but perhaps maybe let's take a break and, and, and chew it off after the break. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It's amazing how time flies. It's now 19 to 7, and I'm joined in studio by Joanne Madison, who is the head of corporate governance at TMF uh, Group. And before we went to the break, we were talking uh, about the strength of character um, for those that are expressing a different view at the board level. And I contend that, uh, in theory, all board members are equal, but in practice, some board members are more important than others, depending on whether 
which position you occupy and how you even got there for it, for that matter. So there are very, there are a lot of subtle issues that comes to play at the boardroom. For example, the chairperson is like God in most instances. Um, so how do you master the art of character to say, Mr. Chairperson, yeah, I hear you, but let it be minuted that on this day, on this particular issue, I had a fundamentally different view. I think it goes back to the earlier discussion we had about independence of mind and having a level of remuneration that each director is not dependent on. And I think the more you behave independently, the more your legitimacy on the board, and then people really value what you say, and it will be harder to push what you say under the carpet and move on. But is it practical? It's hard. It's very hard. <laughs> I, 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 I wish I could disagree with you and say it doesn't happen that much, but there are definitely different agendas and different power blocks on boards. That is the reality of human nature. And I, I think for me, this is where the, the, the interesting aspect of being in a board, and, because some of these things are not written anywhere, and, and you, you learn as you go along the way. And unfortunately, because you don't have the, in some sense, there's no precedent. You're, you're caught wanting. I'll, I'll be quite surprised um, or interesting to know in some of these controversial boards whether the voice of dissent um, have expressed their views on a table. It would be fascinating to know that. I mean, you mentioned the KPMG scandal. If one looks at the literature on that, it was low-level people who picked up the discrepancies. What exactly the process was and how high up they raised it, I, I'm not in a position to comment. But if a low-level auditor tells a partner, look, this is what I found, mm-hmm. and that partner doesn't pass it on or do anything about it, then that may never come to the board. You know, so the board is unaware. But on the other hand, you could say that if you're on a on a board, you have a duty, if something doesn't feel right, to go below the board and talk to senior management. But there are, that in itself raises a lot of issues. First of all, there's protocol. You have to go through the CEO. You can't just go to people Absolutely. below that because then you're starting to create an antagonistic relationship, and that's the last thing you want. You do want a healthy tension between the non-execs and the execs. But that mustn't get out of hand and it mustn't get too cozy. And the reason that you have that tension is because they do have different interests and each one is looking at their territory. And the more governance and the more accountability you have, the more chance you have of those roles overlapping and the more chance you have of increased tension. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Tensions are very useful, particularly um, where, the, where, where there are different thought, thought processes, because ultimately, by virtue of sitting in a board, you draw from individual strength based on their background. Someone from finance is more likely to articulate issues from a financial perspective. Someone who's coming from a legal background is more likely to articulate issues from a legal perspective. Someone from uh, a human capital side of things is more likely. So there's this benefit of drawing 
um, insights and expertise from these 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 people, which which elevates the importance of the convener, the the board chairperson, because if that board chairperson is not in a position of of, of harnessing all these different energies, um, that could account for the board failure. Absolutely, and it again goes back to how do you select your board members? If it if it's based on cronyism, you're off to a bad start. But is it is, is it not is it is it inevitable? It's not inevitable. I think I've come across some absolutely fantastic boards with the most incredible integrity, with very very dynamic relationship, constructive debates on a board. It's absolutely possible, but it does talk to the culture of a company and how you select your board members. So it's definitely not inevitable. I couldn't agree with him on that point. But perhaps maybe as we're wrapping up the conversation, um, Joanne, um, what I want us maybe to hone in, it is the interface between the board as well as management, because this is where a lot goes wrong. Uh, because if you do not have a jacked-up uh, chairperson, a jacked-up chairpersons of different committees, um, what what gets elevated to board will often reflect information asymmetry, which means whatever has been elevated or discussed at the board level may not necessarily empower the board to, to take good decisions. Because ultimately, you know, you as a board member, you get judged on the quality of your decision. The quality of the decision is informed by the quality of information presented before you. If you've got a quality information, the chances are you're more likely to be spot on. But if information is fragmented, information is incoherent, if information comes in drips and drips, and and compounded by by mistrust from the executive, how 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 do you turn that around? Well, I think. One way of doing it is to make sure the CEO doesn't do all the talking because then you're getting one viewpoint. So first of all, you have to have at least two executives on a board so that you're getting at least two viewpoints. But if even if you have two executives on the board and the CEO still does all the talking, that in itself <laughs> could very well be a red flag. Can I, can I show you? Um, I... This is very interesting because I'm yet to see because when you get to the board, uh, being one of the other director, you get told, "Listen, this is our position." But but as a board chairperson or as a board member, how do you begin to pick up um, that? Uh, look, the information that is coming from these two executives, um, it's not necessarily the same. Well, I think maybe if if you have a dominant CEO, for example, and the CFO is not saying very much. The chairman should actually have a meeting with the CFO and perhaps, you know, take him out for lunch and discuss informally and try and get his trust and see if there is a different viewpoint to see if if there are any red flag issues. And then perhaps tell the CEO you would like to meet the next tier or maybe what you can do in a big organization is to have the key managers of different divisions come and make a presentation on their particular area of responsibility. It can just be a short presentation, but if you have that, then you can start integrating information and pick up whether there are any red flags or whether you just have a very dynamic 
charismatic CFO and CEO? I think you're raising a very important point, and I'm sure listeners would concur for those that have had an experience of, of bad leadership. Um, I think already that's a, a good sign right there. If you are a board um, who has just been you know, uh, brought into the fold, it is useful for you to understand exactly how this operation works. And going beyond the CEO, getting different directors to make presentations so that you can make informed decisions. Because it is through that when you have, when you understand the, the, the organizational configuration, um, different units, and, and what sort of information is expected from different units and how those, this information becomes part and parcel of integrated reporting, you are better positioned to ask the right questions. Absolutely. And what I would add to that is when you're inducted on a board, you should get a a big file of all the issues relating not only to the industry, but to wider regulatory compliance, all those type of issues. And what I found when I've been appointed to a board is that when I have that induction, I'm basically fairly passive. I'm just absorbing the information. And then I've asked for a follow-up meeting six months later and maybe a year later when I have more understanding of the company and the industry. And I think if you're on a board, it's incumbent on you to have those regular meetings with whoever is the appropriate person so that you're more tuned to picking up red flags. Very true, very true. But would you say there's something that you would encourage um, for uh, people that are aspiring to to participate in boards? And and what would what would your your suggestion be around uh, things to look out for uh, for those that are already operating in boards? Well, I think an understanding of the financials and not just looking at numbers, but actually rather focusing on ratios, focusing on trends, because those kind of things give you a better sense of what's happening. Um, There might be a lot of money in the bank, but if you look at cash flow, that's a better determinant of the health of the company. So you really need to understand the implications of ratios. So there are a number of things that you can look at that will give you an indication of whether the company is in a healthy state. Is it growing? Is it making profits? Because making lots of profits just by cost cutting is not a sustainable strategy. That leads to compromises on quality and eventually it's no longer a strategy. So you have to understand those kind of dynamics. Well, what would you say around compliance as something that you'd advise people to think about and what aspect of compliance would you recommend for for would-be board members or those that are currently sitting in boards? Well, there's such a proliferation of legislation. There's no ways that you can... Uh, have an understanding of it all. So depending on the size of the company, you'd have a compliance officer, a chief risk officer. It might all be one and the same person depending on the industry and the complexity of the company. But I think you should have regular briefings at board level on what are the key legislative issues that impact that specific company. And you need to understand the legislation 
and standards and industry norms at a high level so that you can pick up on the key issues and have the comfort from reports at committee level that they have understood from operations that these things are being attended to and the committees have received reports dealing with the key issues. Whose responsibility would it be to organize this regular briefing for board members to be on board it? Well, I think it would come out in the application register of King 4 because one of the issues is ongoing training and development. So the company secretary would put it on the agenda, but it's also incumbent on the board to be prepared to devote the time because it often boards are interested in things that are urgent, not necessarily in issues that are important. They're often only interested in matters that are important when there's a problem. But having regular briefings will prevent something important becoming something urgent and a crisis that has to be dealt with. This is very exciting, Joanne. Um, The last point I'm very, very passionate about uh, in making a distinction between what is urgent and what is what is important um when when you look at organizational culture especially on the this the softer side of things you may not necessarily value uh a change um as something or you may not think of change as something that is urgent but something that is important um let's look at a company that has merged or company that has been acquired um the value of change management is quite important for you know for both the board because if you have had a coherent strategy on how you manage change, you're more likely to understand uh, the, the 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 ranking of those points that you think are quite critical. Um, you could say these are issues because you've done a thorough change management strategy that is in place. Um, these issues are important. These these issues are urgent. Yes, I think change management is very critical and very hard to implement. Um, but I think the issues that are often regarded as urgent are things that relate to money. Things that are important often relate to compliance. And you have to have proper processes in place to deal with what's urgent and what's important and a chairman needs to understand and manage that process. Well, Joanne, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Our time has run out. As always, it is such an important uh, and, and, and exciting conversation every time when you're around. And we should do this more. And I hope everybody have had a sense of the complex nature of being a board member. Uh, because it's not it's not something that is easy as that, but we should always push the envelope by making sure that we read a lot, we ask questions, and we are all informed. Um, until we meet again, um, Joanne. Thank you, Namrod. Thank the, you for inviting me. The pleasure is mine. Vosi, thank you very much for keeping the the, 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 the ship afloat. Until we meet again, um, stay blessed.